to the first of the regular series of UKLA general podcasts, where we showcase the interesting work of UKLA members and bring interesting things to UKLA members' attention. Today features an interview with Elsie Blackshaw-Crosby, a lawyer at the LifeScape Project. This was founded relatively recently in 2017 by a group of city solicitors, environmental consultants and academics predominantly at the University of Cumbria. They decided to combine their expertise in one place with the aim of both preventing the further degradation of the world's ecosystems and restoring what has already been degraded. And its legal experts, such as Elsie, are using cutting-edge legal arguments internationally. Now, their work is so fascinating, I could have talked with Elsie for hours. I can reassure listeners, though, that we will keep you updated on the LifeScape Project's work, including the cases I speak about with Elsie in the conversation to follow. I hope you enjoy it, and as ever, thank you for listening. Welcome to the UKLA podcast. I am here um, on a very exciting interview with Elsie Blackshaw-Crosby of the LifeScape Project. Hi, and good afternoon, Elsie. Hi, Nina. Great to be with you. Now, I think for those of the listeners who aren't aware of the LifeScape Project, they will be very keen to hear about how it was founded because the origins of it are very interesting. Uh, If you could take us through that, that would be most wonderful. And then also take us through your own background, because that's just as interesting, I think. So the LifeScape Project originated out of a pro bono project that was a collaboration between um, some lawyers at Clifford Chance, academics at the University of Cumbria and Uh, various people at ACOM, the environment consultancy firm. Uh, It was a project sort of studying the potential to reintroduce the links to the north of England. And after they had finished that that project, the the kind of the team that were involved were very keen to sort of like work together. They sort of really, um, they really enjoyed the sort of the the multidisciplinary approach that they had kind of adopted and sort of, yeah, sort of developed through that project. And they wanted to continue being able to do that in other sort of environmental related projects. So they um, set up LifeScape Project and that kind of developed from just being sort of an informal group of people to them being a not-for-profit company. And then finally we registered as a a charity in 20. 20 end of 2020 and it was in 2020 that we started becoming professionalized so we got um one of the a lawyer from um cc a litigator adam eagle moved across um from cc to become lifescape's ceo and then i joined lifescape as its sort of first full-time employee in february of this year 2021 and since then we've now we've now grown for me in february february 2021 we've now got another four employees so we're going from one employee to five employees and um, within 10 months Absolutely. and in the recent circumstances of the world um which is uh, really impressive i think yeah and it's i think it's a testament to how much how much work there is to do in the sort mm. of the, the field of what we're what we're doing and then to go back to sort of like what lifescape does our mission is that we want to live in a world rich and wild landscapes and the way that we do that is by is this we can adapt this multidisciplinary approach that sort of has its origins in the original project so we have five core areas of work we have um the law which is what i what i do i'm the managing lawyer at lifescape so i'm in charge of all of our legal projects and then we work also um across technology science 
economics and culture. So we have, uh, you know, have, have a look at our website. I know, I know our uh, conversation today, Nina, will focus on sort of the legal projects because we're obviously talking to um, you, Kayla. We are a myopic group, you, Kayla, but we do have interests outside of the law. So that's yeah. really interesting. The four employees, are they also um, part of this interdisciplinary team? Yeah, yeah. So we have a lead ecologist who is mm-hmm. doing various other projects looking at missing species in the in the UK and sort of learning about uh, learning and sort of developing and um, promoting sort of expertise and introducing other species and um, are missing within the UK ecosystem. And is that based on historic species assemblages or species where you'd expect in a similar ecosystem them to be? Yeah, it's 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 not my area of expertise. My understanding is that it's not a clear cut process of these were the species that you know were mm-hmm. here previously. And there's there's various sort of different ways and surveys that they would look at, and you know ecologists would look back at historical information and think about what kind of species they would expect to be living in. In, in the UK, when we're talking about missing species, you're not talking about, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago, you're talking about pre sort of human intervention in, mm, in the right. ecosystem. So you you don't necessarily have records of exactly what's here. But there's definitely, you know, big thinking, sort of worldwide thinking about all of the different trophic levels within a functioning ecosystem. And, and so it's about adding resilience, I should think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and often, you know, often the sort of the, the species that might have been here originally, you know, maybe they become extinct, but there's other species that would have a, a similar function within an ecosystem um, that you would maybe be looking to, to introduce. Golly, extremely interesting, innovative work on the science front there. But like you said, we're going to focus on the, the legal innovations that LifeScape's responsible for. One thing, and this is what brought LifeScape to my attention, was a case that you had up in Scotland concerning beaver. I think the, the what I'm interested in is the beaver translocation aspect of that. Um, but if you could explain where this case came about, um, what was argued and what the result was, that would be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a case where the claimant was Trees for Life, which is a Highland-based rewilding charity up in Scotland. In terms of the, the, the way we work is reflected in, in this case, because to date, we haven't been a claimant. We're, we are sort of behind the scenes, bringing sort of legal expertise, working with local lawyers typically to kind of bring the cases. But we've got the I suppose the, the the background that commercial lawyers typically wouldn't have in terms of ecology and sort of understanding how why these cases are so important and sort of the types of arguments that we could we could usefully make. So um, choose for life with a claimant. We were sort of behind the scenes and case stemmed from figures released by by Nature Scott, which showed that within the first year of beavers becoming protect, a protected species in Scotland, so they became protected under the habitats regulations in May 2019, I think within the first 12 months, Nature Scott had issued licenses under which 20% of the beaver population were shot within 12 months. Have, have designated a, an internationally protected species. It, yeah, exactly. Haven't been designated as an internationally protected species. Um, 20% of the population was shot within 12 months. And the population in Scotland is is not large. It's not like, you know, in Germany or other places where beavers have been, you know, have really become mm-hmm. part of the ecosystem again. I mean, I think at the time that they were protected, there was something, and don't don't quote me on these figures, but there was something around sort of like four to 500 beavers in Scotland. You know, it's not Gosh, a huge, yeah, that is not a huge number. Um, so, so Trees for Life and sort of the wider conservation community in Scotland were quite concerned about these figures when they came out. And we were working with Trees for Life on another project 
and they came to us and, and said, you know, what do you think we can do about this from a legal standpoint? So we sort of looked at looked at different options and we decided that we would issue a judicial review against Nature Scott, basically challenge the issuing of these licenses um, and mm. sort of the way that they went about it and the approach that they they took um, in relation to these these licenses. And the, the the arguments that we put forward were that under the under the habitats regulations, so there's you know there's strict protection of the habitats regulations where you know you basically shouldn't interfere with protected species. But then, well, I think you'd need a derogation here, absolutely, if you're shooting the animal. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so there's there, there, there's there's certain circumstances under which you can have a derogation, and one one of them is sort of damage to to property or to farmland, mm-hmm. and that's the issue with beavers is that they do undoubtedly cause damage. Um, when they're in the wrong locations and in Tayside in, in Scotland um, which is like a you know an area that's full of agricultural low-lying agricultural land which is heavily drained and um, beavers do block the drainage and they do cause flooding there's there's no question no one disputes that but what we what we do dispute is the way in which that uh, that that sort of damage and, and that conflict is managed and um, the the arguments that we put forward were that under the habitats regulation there's this requirement that there should be no satisfactory alternative mm. to the derogation and our argument was that even within the derogation there must be no satisfactory alternative to the derogation that's that's actually awarded or sort of allowed and mm. um, meaning that before you can issue a lethal control license you should actually have to show that you can't translocate the animal because yeah. you know translocation has its risks but ultimately they're a lot lower than shooting the animal when it will definitely die. Um, yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, that seems reasonable. If you're um, applying for a derogation, not only is there a spectrum in terms of um, what, where there's a satisfactory alternative to the derogation itself, but also within the actions that comprise that derogation. And when you're looking at lethal means, I, I, that seems a reasonable argument to me. So how did that go down in the court? Well, unfortunately, Lady Carmichael didn't actually agree with us on that point. Mm. But she did agree with us on uh, another sort of like really significant argument that we brought, which is kind of really important for transparency in, in these sort of licences. And so we argued that Nature Scott had failed to comply with the general duty to give reasons for its decision for its decisions in relation to issuing these licenses the court agreed with us and so all the licenses which were still um valid at the time of the judgment were quashed so nature's got all of those and they've got to give reasons for all of them i should think yes and so there's 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 a yeah huge amount of work now for nature scott to be reviewing and 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 you know actually needing to reconsider all of its licenses across all species um arguably and and so we're sort of you know waiting to we're making investigations with nature scott as to what they're actually doing in response to the judgment and but the the really big win in scotland which you know it's not clear how much the judicial review impacted this or caused this change but the big change and is actually a political change and whereby Mm -hmm. The, the Scottish government had previously had a policy of no translocation outside of current range within Scotland. And a couple of weeks ago now, um, the Scottish government announced 180 degree turn in, in policy and now they're actively promoting within out, outside range translocation within Scotland as an alternative to lethal control. That's wonderful. Um, so I think I think it's going to be subject to a consultation, but that's a, mm-hmm. a huge change um, in terms of there being a political roadblock and now actually being political encouragement for 
um, translocation. Yeah. Do you have an idea? And I appreciate the the license reasons haven't been issued yet, um, so maybe not. But do you have an idea of how many um, uh, instances that would have prevented a, a lethal method of control of the beaver problem? I think that there are, there are certain there are certain circumstances where the sort of the geography of of where the beavers are mean that they can't be trapped and then translocated. And um, mm-hmm. I would have thought, um, and this is this is a pure guess. I don't I don't actually know, but I would have thought you know the vast majority of instances where they beavers have been shot, they could be translocated if there are receptor sites available. And you know you, you think how how much of Scotland isn't agricultural land? You know you know how much of Scotland is sort of fairly wild and uninhabited, and you know probably absolutely welcoming of of beavers. And um, you know the hope would be that. Once this policy is sort of in place and happening, there will be lots of sites that are willing to to accept these beavers, and yeah, and, well, and we can move away from the, the lethal control. Absolutely, they can be a positive feature in managing um, landscape naturally, where flooding is an issue already, as opposed to um, agricultural land, where obviously you don't really want your corn under, uh, or I should think in Scotland your oats um, underwater. Yeah. That's really, really exciting. Um, There's another initiative that I'd like to speak about that the Lifescape Project is involved with, and that's the Forest Litigation Collaborative. Um, Can you tell me what you're involved with under that and what exactly that means? So when I say Forest Litigation Collaborative, what does that entail? Yeah, so the Forest Litigation Collaborative is a collaboration between the Lifescape Project, and we bring the sort of the legal expertise, and uh, the Partnership for Policy Integrity, which is a U.S not-for-profit organisation which has a lot of scientific expertise. We work in particular with Dr Mary Booth who's the director of PFPI and she's sort of generally known to be a world-leading expert on biomass issues in particular sort of from a forest perspective and the goal of the Forest Litigation Collaborative is to protect forest ecosystems in particular by using litigation it's a, and it's a, it's a global initiative. Pretty much all of our work so far has focused on trying to tackle the increasing reliance on forest biomass energy as a, as a form of renewable energy because it's causing real devastation to natural forests across the world. How so? What, what happens is that, so, so forest biomass, going back to basics, forest, forest biomass energy um, is, is, is when wood pellets that are manufactured from different types of wood or wood residues and um, when they are burned for energy and you know a big a big example of you know wood biomass energy is drax in, in north yorkshire which is used to be a coal power plant and has converted i think it's six of its burners it may, may be a different number but it's um it's converted a number of its um uh, burners to burning wood biomass instead of coal and thereby saying they're sustainable from what i understand yeah, yeah. So, so, so the issue with 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 biomass stems from the renewable energy directive at an EU level, which defines biomass energy, including from forests, as renewable. Mm. It, it includes the sort of a reference to sort of waste wood, but the the issue with the definition of waste wood is it's not just you know sawmill residues or construction debris or what we'd normally think of as waste. Yeah, or yeah. branches of wood that have been cut down for some other reason from a commercial plantation. Mm. What can also fall within the definition of waste is kind of whole trees actually that don't have another commercial purpose. So 
if you think of an old growth, you know, primary forest, these trees are, you know, curvy, they're not very straight, they've maybe got sort of like chunks taken out of them, they're not going to be able to be used for sort of traditional wood uses like timber um, and under the definition of what counts as qualifying for um, under the renewable energy directive all of these trees can be cut down so you have instances where ancient forests are, are clear cut you know it's not even just taking the odd tree the whole multiple hectares is cut down and and burned That's what I was gonna ask. so we're seeing this happening is that right definitely uh, yeah you know there's there's clear examples there's some really compelling evidence in reports that have produced been produced by NGOs in um, the southeastern USA in Canada in particular in British Columbia yeah. and in eastern Europe where this is where this is really happening the other issue with wood biomass which from a so I mean that's that's a a kind of a huge loss and kind of tragedy from a biodiversity perspective but from a mm. climate perspective the idea is that wood counts as, as as a zero carbon form of energy but actually if you if you were just to look at what actually comes out of the smokestack when you burn these wood pellets for for energy burning the wood pellets produces more co2 per final unit of energy produced than burning coal is that right goodness the reason it can be, there's, there's various reasons that it's counted as zero carbon, but one of them is under the kind of the international carbon accounting rules, it's meant to be counted in the land sector where of the country where it's felled and you can't double count. So that's one reason, but that doesn't mean that it's, and the IPCC reports on this actually specifically say you shouldn't take that accounting mechanism as saying that it counts as zero mm. carbon. But the other thing is, is this idea that trees will regrow and that you know, as as uh, as trees regrow, they they resequester the carbon that's been released, and so it's this net zero kind of mm. um, accounting. But in reality, for a tree to regrow to an extent that it will resequester the carbon, you're talking multiple decades, if not centuries. So yeah, and not in line with 1.5 degrees by 2030. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to happen. It's not it's not a relevant timescale. Um, mm. so yeah. So that's the kind of the that's the issue that we're trying to tackle at the moment. Using and are you is there litigation or anything ongoing un, under that specific either the the primary growth I would say exemption, but I think it's probably just an oversight where it's classified as waste and therefore suitable for uh, biomass fuel under the renewable energy directive, um, or otherwise with the accounting issue um, where it's not being addressed within the metric for saying that something is renewable or sustainable energy when in reality when you look at the facts on the ground it's 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 not at all yes we've got we've got a there's, there's a huge number of sort of uh things in in the pipeline um but there's maybe two cases that i can talk about now that give you a flavor of the different types of approaches that we might take to tackle these issues. So one of them in, in the UK is that in at the end of October, we filed along with other complainants. So PFPI was complaining and the RSPB was a complainant. And there was a number of other sort of international NGOs that joined forces with us. And we filed our complaint to the national contact point of the OECD in the UK and um, under the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. Before I sort of looked into this, it wasn't something, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a, uh, you know, the set of guidelines weren't something that I was aware of, but they provide a but number you need something. of, yeah. they provide a number of sort of um, different guidelines um, about the way that, you know, large multinational enterprises sh should be behaving. Mm. Uh, there's two chapters that were particularly and relevant in, in this complaint. One was, uh, there's, there's specifically an environment chapter, and there's one called consumer interests, which is about making sure you're not misleading consumers. 
Um, and we filed this complaint directly against Drax Group PLC, who run the Drax Power Station. And what we were doing in the complaint was we were saying that they were they were breaching the guidelines in a number of ways in relation to how they advertise and portray their energy to consumers. Yeah, it, it was it was filed in October. And okay, so probably too soon for us to have an answer from the OECD. What's the process there? Do they then? take it away, get comments from Drax and then issue a report or is there a hearing? What I haven't a clue what the OECD complaints process consists of. And I, I suspect a lot of listeners wouldn't. No, 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 it's, it's not very well known really. So, so we submitted our complaint in October. The next step is for Drax to um, submit a response to our complaint. And um, I think typically they're meant to, I think that whole process is meant to happen within about six weeks, but I think there's been various delays internally at the OECD. So I'm not sure we'll be getting our response from Drax uh, maybe for another month or so. Right. Once that happens, the OECD undertakes sort of an initial assessment. And my understanding is that they're not looking at the substance of the complaint at that point, you know, deciding whether we're right or wrong, but looking more at whether we satisfy sort of procedural requirements in terms of, you know, is Drax a multinational enterprise? Have we properly sort of set out our case? Those types of things. And assuming that we do um, overcome those points then they will take it forward to the next stage and the national contact points of the OECD try to facilitate sort of outcomes by sort of negotiation and, and mediation you know they offer they say that they offer the parties their good offices to try mm -hmm. to reach a sort of an agreed solution we are very keen to sort of enter into that process with Drax and we hope that they will enter into it in, in good faith yeah. but if we can't achieve the sort of the outcome that we are hoping to achieve through that process we have asked the national contact point to undertake its own sort of analysis of what we are saying in the complaint and to issue a final statement that sort of says whether or not they think that what Drax is doing is misleading consumers. And I suspect that final statement is public, thereby incentivizing parties to negotiate. Yeah, it's public. Marvellous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so as with all of these things, you know, they're not legally binding, but there's a huge, a huge sort of PR. Absolutely point on yeah. it yeah and then you said there was another case there are two cases under the force litigation collaborative what was the other case that you wanted to speak about the the other case that we are involved in at the moment is in estonia and it's close uh, to my heart my dad's estonian is he yeah oh yeah. yeah i mean estonia is a country where we are really involved at the moment we've got another two potential cases that we might be looking at in the new year as well in estonia because it's such a forested country. There's so yeah. many sort of beautiful natural forests um, and the government there just seems absolutely dead set on destroying them um, and sort of allowing them all to be cut for biomass. And there's an incredibly active NGO network trying to protect the forests in Estonia. So we're very involved in Estonia, but this particular case relates to a community forest in, in the north of Estonia in a town called Majama. And um, the concept of a community forest is, you know, I think I think they're actually designated under sort of planning law in Estonia as, you know, an area of forest that is actively used by the community. Right. So our version of commons land, but with trees. Yeah, maybe. Although these are they are actually privately owned. So oh, right. it's it's yeah. I'm, I'm not sure of the sort of the, the legal subtleties, but it is does seem to be a kind of a legally recognized concept of a community mm. forest. This forest in Estonia, you know, for example, it has a bandstand in it where community events are held or sort of concerts. Uh, there's lots of sort of ski trails and walking trails in it, but it, it is uh, privately owned and um, permits have been issued to log in the forest for biomass energy. And the, the local community were 
pretty distraught about this because they would lose their sort of their, their community forest through this through this felling um, mm-hmm. and so we are working with a number of residents of the town as well as some local NGOs to challenge the permits that have been issued and we unfortunately received a a negative judgment in the first instance and we're now waiting for the appeal but it's quite an interesting case because there, there's some sort of like I suppose, I suppose I'd say semi-traditional arguments that you know the this this site is I think about 500 meters from a Natura 2000 site and no environmental impact assessment was done and where you know there's some arguments there about well an environmental impact assessment should have been done and therefore the permits are you know they're invalid yeah. and they should be revoked and that's an argument i think a lot of environmental lawyers in the uk will be well familiar with yeah it's exactly that's why i say sort of a you know a, a fairly standard traditional traditional approach to trying to challenge um, these types of licenses but then we've also in the appeal we filed some certainly in estonia it's pretty novel type of evidence you know the courts haven't seen it before where we we filed expert evidence from a noise expert and from a sort of a wind expert and looking at the kind of the natural capital value and services that the forests offer to the community and because the forest is in between a major motorway and the the town so sort of like Mm. a a degree of noise protection and then also offers wind protection to the community Um, and we we submitted expert evidence saying that looking at how the forest offers these services and arguing that under various provisions of of Estonian law when, when you're issuing these permits you need to take into account these types of issues and not just the commercial value and that's absolutely fascinating natural capital is all the rage now and the I think the argument is has moved on from do we take account of it to how do we take account of it and it looks like you've squared that circle here so I'm assuming that evidence came from uh, technical experts and has it been granted permission by the court is that necessary or are you allowed to to put it in and then see what they the judge does with it how is how does that yeah process? it seems the procedural rules in Estonia seem a bit more vague than they are in the UK and I mean our local lawyers just said yeah let's put it in and right. it seemed to be I think when when there isn't a rule against it a lawyer will say well there there you are yeah so so we've not we've not heard um we're still waiting to hear, you know, but we, 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 we submitted it months ago and there's not been any suggestion that it's not going to be accepted. And um, so we just have to well, wait. That's absolutely. Yeah. One to watch without doubt whatsoever, because it's really going to set the vanguard for how these types of cases should go forward, not only in terms of the um, impact on a Natura 2000 site when you're contemplating development in its vicinity, but also in terms of how you take account of natural capital generally, because that really really needs to start happening um at pace i think to get to where we need to be yeah 100 agree it's a it's a big change yeah it's innovative it's so exciting but it's also absolutely necessary i can't wait to hear the outcome of that so <laughs> i keep an eye on it and um invite you back uh, when we know the outcome all of these cases are absolutely fascinating so we try to keep up we try to sort of update our social media and stuff so do you know if anyone's interested in following it then um Oh, that's wonderful. What's the, is it on Instagram or, well, I'm assuming you're on Twitter. Um, Twitter, Facebook um, and LinkedIn are our main uh, ones. We do post on Instagram, but the legal work doesn't tend to, tend to be quite so sort of grabbing or kind of, uh, yeah, that's true. There's only so many pictures of lawyers you, people can stomach. Yeah. All right. So Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Lifescape Project, um, absolutely one to keep your eye on. Thank you so much, Elsie. That's been really, really fascinating. We've gone over time, but I didn't want to stop. It was so interesting. So I'm really, really grateful for all your time this afternoon. You're welcome, Nina. Great to speak to you.